0: Welcome to the Pro-Life Team Podcast. I'm Mike Spencer, and I'm here with Jacob today, and we're going to talk about the church's response to abortion. We're so glad you've joined us. So, so
1: Mike, I'm glad to have you on the Pro-Life Team Podcast. Would you introduce yourself as if you were talking to a handful of executive directors of Precy Clinics who may not know you as of yet?
0: Yeah. uh, No, I'm glad to do that. So, yeah, my name is Mike Spencer, and I lead a ministry called Project Life Voice. Uh, This is a um, a um, gospel-driven human rights ministry that equips um, and inspires pro-life ambassadors to speak intelligently um, and to act sacrificially on behalf of um, the most oppressed and marginalized among us, our pre-born neighbors and their young moms and dads. And so I do that in a variety of settings. I do that in um, high schools, um, university settings, workshops, conferences. Uh, I do a lot of banquet speaking for pregnancy care centers um, and um, uh, a lot of churches as well. In fact, really in the last couple of years, I've done an awful lot of work um, speaking in pastors' luncheons and breakfasts and things like that. Typically, that's the morning after I've spoken at a banquet. Um, A lot of times the center that brings me in will... Um, host of pastors breakfast that I'll speak at as well. So, but basically my work is equipping pro-life ambassadors to speak, um, confidently and graciously to this issue.
1: Awesome. Yeah. Tell us, tell us about, uh, project life voice. Uh, tell us what that is and
0: where you're at today and how it got started. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> I served in pastoral roles for 23 years and about 12 years ago, I stepped away, um, uh, because I was invited to um, serve on the teaching staff of uh, Life Training Institute with Scott Klusendorf, which I did for eight years, and that was um, a wonderful experience. that opened all kinds of doors for me that would not have opened otherwise. But about three-plus years ago, I stepped away to start Project Life Voice. And again, this is a, a gospel-driven ministry that equips and inspires pro-life ambassadors. But um, in short, what I'm doing is I'm I'm trying to awaken the church and equip the church Um, particularly pastors, although that's not the majority of my work, but it's a strong emphasis of my work is equipping uh, and encouraging pastors to speak up. So, um, and again, I do that in, you know, a variety of settings as I've already shared. So, and I've been doing this now for, yeah, about three years. So, and travel all over the United States and even beyond when I'm invited to do so.
1: Awesome. Um, So tell us about your origin story of, you know, getting into the pro-life work and the pro-life world. Uh, what did that look like? And yeah, how did you get, what was your, you know, the first dominoes into this uh, new adventure?
0: Yeah. Well, so I was um, raised in a really good home. It was not a Christian home per se. Uh, my parents did come to faith in Christ later in, in uh, well, my dad in my, I guess my middle school years, my mom, not until I graduated from high school, but um I sort of just absorbed, uh, not having been raised in the church or anything like that, I sort of just absorbed the kind of the classical so-called pro-choice position. I wasn't rabidly pro-choice. I don't remember ever arguing it or debating it with anybody. Uh, Frankly, I didn't care that much about it. But I think I was like a lot of Americans. Um, I knew abortion was wrong. Um, I knew it was a bad thing. But like a lot of Americans, I saw it as a necessary evil. But all of that changed for me in... um, actually just into 1984. In 1983, when I was 21 years old, I came to faith in Christ. And um, that, of course, was you know changed everything for me. And the church that I started attending uh, in the Detroit area, Detroit area where I grew up, uh, showed uh, the film one Wednesday night, The Silent Scream, which I know you and I'm sure many of your, your uh, listeners are familiar with. But that was a film that had been produced by um, former abortionist who um, uh, became pro-life and became Catholic, and and that was Bernard Nathanson, and he actually uh, in this film, The Silent Scream, um, you you actually saw an ultrasound-guided abortion, and I saw that on a Wednesday night. I walked into that church um, uh, on a Wednesday night, not having any idea what was um, you know planned for the evening, but. Uh, About an hour and a half or so later, I walked out forever changed because that night I saw with my own eyes for the very first time what abortion did to little boys and girls. And Jacob, I couldn't believe it. I absolutely couldn't believe it. That was just a huge game changer for me. So it was just a radical transformation that night. I left um, that church that evening asking God to forgive me um, that I ever thought that this was okay. So, as I said earlier, I did go on to serve in pastoral roles, but my burden for the unborn and for their young moms and dads just continued to grow. And as, as I, um, you know, traveled in evangelical, uh, circles, I saw so few pastors who were willing to speak out boldly and redemptively to this issue. And that only caused my, my burden to grow even more. And then in, uh, years later, when I was in, I was pastoring a church in Fort Wayne, Indiana and, um, uh, through my involvement in the pro life community there, I was I was pastoring and, and very engaged in the pro life community there. I, I met a young man named Tim, and Tim had actually lifted a little baby girl um, who had been aborted um, at about four and a half five months of gestation, and her he had lifted her body from a dumpster behind an abortion clinic again in my hometown in the, in Detroit, uh, with the intention of giving her a proper burial, which he did. But in the meantime, my wife Barbara and I. Um, saw that little one and actually held her on a cloth diaper in our hands. And, you know, like you, and I'm sure like those listening who are pro-life, you know, we hear the rhetoric from the other side, my body, my choice, you know, don't like abortion, don't have one, every child, will want a child and so forth. But when you hold in your hands a precious little image bearer, this little girl whose, you know, body is perfectly formed. She was again aborted by a saline solution abortion. So she, her body was not dismembered. Um, it was perfectly intact, although she had been, you know, severely burned by that solution. But to see that beautiful little life and to see it extinguished, to see, you know, this lifeless child, to hold that that child in your hands, it, it really causes all of the um, the cliches and all of the sloganeering that we hear from the other side to really disintegrate under the weight of that child. So it was experiences like this that just really profoundly impacted me and have really shaped my my pro life convictions. So.
1: Yeah, and i and I read uh, parts of that story you just shared in your book, uh, Humanly Speaking. And can you tell us, yeah, you know, who's this book for? And well, and it seems like it's one of the main audiences is the church. You know, the pastor, the churchgoer. Um, can you speak to that that connection and how that book is written for that for this desired audience?
0: Yeah, no, I'm glad to do that. So the book, again, as you said, is titled Humanly Speaking, and the subtitle is The Evil of Abortion, The Silence of the Church, and the Grace of God. And I'm really focusing on those three themes in the book. Um, It really is, at least I intended it to be, and I think it is, kind of an expose on the silence of the church, um, but also um, challenging It was not a book written to pastors. It's written to Christians in general, but it certainly has great relevancy for pastors, for shepherds. Um, And really what I wanted to do was help people see their response, our Christian response, to abortion as a gospel issue, a loving your neighbor as yourself issue. And so I make that case in the book, and then I also debunk a lot of the, the excuses really and a lot of the myths um, that have caused so many churches um, to go silent, have caused so many pastors to sort of self-censor, um, and and so yeah, it's it really and, and then really ultimately it's it's a call to the church to speak and to act on behalf of the preborn um, uh, in a God-honoring way.
1: Yeah, and yeah, my my experience with church is that um, you know I have a desire for for abortion to be addressed much more than it is, uh, to be addressed from the pulpit to be, uh, and, and usually my experience seems to be that it's brought up in small circles, maybe not from the pulpit, but what, what are your thoughts on, you know, why do you think so many churches are silent on abortion? And can you speak to like, you know, the pulpit silence as well as maybe the communication
0: shame silence? Um, yeah. So on the on the first part of that, you said the pulpit silence. Let me let me speak to that. Um, well, there are, there are obviously a variety of reasons why churches are silent on the subject of abortion. Um, one of the reasons is um, a, a fear. I think a lot of uh, shepherds, a lot of church leaders, um, have a fear that if they speak out on this, they're going to lose their tax exemption, or they fear that you know this is going to look too political. It's going to divide the church, or they fear that. Um, uh, that they're going to heap more abuse or more guilt on those who um, have had abortions or have been responsible for them. So I think fear is a, a, a really big motivator. I say a motivator, a motivator for churches to remain silent. Um, ignorance is another one. Um, I think a lot of shepherds are, well, let me restate that. I don't think a lot of shepherds are. I think there are some shepherds who are 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 really unaware of just how profoundly uh, abortion is impacting their pastoral ministry and, and impacting their church. Um, and I say I, I I kind of qualified my kind of requalified my statement there because I know I think most pastors are well aware because they've you know they've counseled women in their church and they've counseled men in their church who are post-abortive who deeply regret it. So they know those stories are out there. But there is a degree of uh, you know of, of uh, ignorance you know with respect to the impact that abortion is having on on the church. And then I think a a third reason, certainly not a final reason, but a third reason is um, apathy. Uh, You know, we don't like to say this, Uh, you know, we want to think well of our pastors, but the truth is, is that in, um, in any career field, you have people who really don't care about the ones that they serve. So you've got some attorneys who don't care about their clients and you've got some school teachers who don't care about the students and some doctors who don't care about their patients. And sadly, and I think most tragically, is that We have plenty of churches um, where the shepherd really doesn't care about the flock. Um, I think there's an enormous amount of apathy with respect to abortion. And, um, you know, Jesus had very strong words for shepherds who will not protect uh, the vulnerable, who will not protect the oppressed, who will not protect the flock. Uh, You know, in John chapter 10, he said, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, but the hireling runs away when the wolf attacks. And for shepherds, especially, you know, in this day and age, for shepherds to remain silent about abortion um, uh, is really just, you know, spiritual malpractice. I mean, we, we know they're being attacked. We we know the numbers. These pastors are, are you know, are, are well aware that, that abortion is um, a great moral evil and, um, and when they won't speak, I think they reveal, they expose the fact that they really are not qualified for the job. And you know, that may sound harsh to some in your audience, but uh, again, it's Jesus that said they're hirelings, not me. They are, the, they are the most vulnerable in our flock, and to, to turn a blind eye to them—I mean, you know—imagine just to elaborate on that, uh, Jacob. Imagine, uh, you know, the, um, uh, you know, in, in Hebrews 11, you know, we read that, uh, you know, the that classic, <clears throat> you know, Hall of Faith chapter. That you know, We talk about David and, and Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and so forth, who conquered kingdoms and shut the mouths of lions and quenched the fury of the flames and routed foreign armies, and it says, and administered justice. So imagine that they could have looked forward to a day in 2023 when so many shepherds would actually choose silence over faithfulness, that, that they would actually um, surrender uh, the most vulnerable of the flock to the abortionist's knife without so much as a whimper from the pulpit. It's a great disgrace. And I think it's the great scandal of the church in America today is that so many churches have gone silent. Now, I just want to add to that very quickly. I do want to say this. I have the privilege um, of speaking frequently throughout the year to pastors, audiences, luncheons, breakfasts, and so forth. And I do meet shepherds who do speak out, who are bold, who are not afraid. Um, and I'm grateful for them, and I think that number is growing. It's certainly not where we would like to see it be, but I think there's a, a, an awakening in the church today um, uh, on this subject. Oh well, I should say a, more specifically, an awakening uh, with respect to the evil threat that abortion is to our flocks, and, and I'm grateful for shepherds who do speak out.
1: Yeah, and I, I would say, you know, for for pastors who happen to hear this podcast, uh, I would encourage you to to know. That people in your your flock desire for for this to be laid out as part of you know as part of the official position of your church, part of your official position as the as the the spiritual guide um, of mm. of myself or others, and so this is this is a, this is a desired thing. Um, and I, I went to a church several years ago, and one of the one of the leaders told me that they're not going to take a position on abortion because it would add one more hurdle for someone who might visit their church and they were trying to like remove roadblocks from someone coming but then when talking to other people about that that concept it felt like then what is a church if you're not going to take a moral stance on something that is so you know clearly exactly. good versus evil then what, what does a church have if it's not taking a stance for good?
0: Exactly. When, the church, when, when Christians or, or church leaders say something like that, what they're really ve- revealing is that they don't believe the gospel that they claim to believe. I mean, imagine if we took that approach towards other sins. What if we said, well, we're not going to speak out against adultery because we might turn adulterers off from the gospel, or we're not going to speak out against lying or gossip or slander because we might turn those people off. If we really believe the gospel, then why don't we lead with it on this issue? Why don't we bring that to bear? Um, it, it, we don't turn people away from the gospel when we reveal or expose sin. Um, w- nobody accuses John the Baptist of turning Herod away from the gospel. Herod turned himself away from the gospel. But we are we are called as shepherds. Now, I'm not actively pastoring anymore. I'm doing this work full-time, but I, I am still a pastor. You can you can take the pastor out of the pulpit, <laughs> but you can't take the pulpit out of the pastor, right? So, um but but really we 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 if we really believe the gospel that we claim to believe then we recognize that we're actually doing people a favor those who have aborted their children or have been responsible for abortion in some way when we expose abortion for the evil that it is and then hold out the gospel hold out the word of life as hope for those who have been impacted by abortion decisions we're actually doing them a favor. John 8, 36 says, if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. So if we really believe that, then that's not a message we should go quiet on. You know, when the church does go go silent, you know, motivated by things like, you know, like you just shared, um, they're, they're actually communicating one of two messages to those in their church who've had abortions or to those in their church who might be considering having an abortion. They're communicating either, A, abortion's not so bad, or B, the gospel is not so good, or both. And and Paul said, speak the truth in love. We can do better than this, right? We, we need to speak the truth in love and let God's work, or let God's spirit do the work in, in the hearts and lives of people. When, when the church goes silent, the shepherd is saying, well, abortion is not a big thing, must be okay with God, no big deal, or it's so bad that I can't even talk about it from the pulpit that this is the unpardonable sin. And both of these are damaging and regretful messages uh, that, that our silence um, sends. And we, we, the church has got to do better than that. Now, you had a second part to that question. Forgive me, I lost that. Do you remember what that was?
1: Well, yeah, I guess I I might have I was just focusing on what you just said, and I lost track of what my other part was. That's, but, right. That's right. But um, can you, let's talk about um, what it looks like for a church to provide both protection for the unborn by speaking and posturing as well as providing a, um, a place where healing can be found for people who yeah. are connected to uh, who need healing from this the sphere of abortion
0: mm-hmm. yeah that's a good question because i think a lot of churches or or even uh, pastors and priests they a lot of times they will assume that they have to make a choice that they're either going to be a church that speaks out boldly against abortion, or they're going to be a church um, where they provide um, a, a kind of a safe, caring, redemptive community for those who are post-abortive. But this is a this is a false dichotomy. This is a false choice. We, we never have to choose between ministering to innocent children and guilty adults. We can do both. The church can do both. Um, again, if we believe the gospel that we claim to believe, and if we lead with the gospel in this in this uh, subject, with this subject, then these are not competing interests. We can love both the unborn child and the adult who has sinned in this way. So, to to maybe flesh that out a little bit further, I think it's entirely possible. I know it's possible. I did it, and I've seen other pastors do it and do it well. It is entirely possible for a shepherd to boldly declare abortion from the pulpit on Sunday morning when the big crowd is there, not just on Wednesday night, you know, when the faithful 12 is there, but to boldly declare declare abortion from the pulpit for the evil that it is, to expose it. You know, Ephesians 5.11, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, rather expose them. And at the same time, it's possible for the shepherd, as I said, to, to hold out the gospel, to hold out the word of life to those who have been hurt. It doesn't have to be done on two different Sundays. It can be done in the same sermon because, again, these these go together like a hand in a glove. They're they not competing interests that said, I do think it's very important for a shepherd to do two things: to boldly declare abortion for the evil that it is, not to dance around it, you know, or, or to, to you know to speak in hushed tones, but to boldly declare it for the threat that it is. But then also to very redemptively um, and very gracefully um, to speak of forgiveness, to speak of God's grace and forgiveness for for anyone who comes to the Father through Christ the Son, acknowledging that He is Lord and that they are sinful and that they need it that they need forgiveness this is this does need to be done gently and kindly and respectfully and and so forth but it but it needs to be done and again we need to trust God's spirit and God's word to do the work instead of you know seeing ourselves as we've got to have some crystal ball and sort of decide how will how do I think people might respond to this message instead just be faithful with the word of God be kind and gracious and yet bold in the way that you present it and and watch God do great things because He will. I've seen it, and many, many other shepherds have seen that as well.
1: One of the values that the church that I go to has is authenticity. And sometimes just simply speaking things as that are real and that are true, but, but mostly that they're just, you know, you know, essentially, you know, confessing something that is uh that is true and in the past and and then asking for someone to pray, uh in the end. You know this experience of helping someone find healing will will double as as um, speaking up against helping others avoid that you know the harms of abortion. Uh, and I think just really you know making it more into a healing confession where someone can listen and pray for someone else um, that that's going to resonate into a culture within a church to um, to you know a, a culture of healing and that of protection and it'll include that protection of being against abortion um, and i think that one of my favorite verses uh, last year my favorite verse was james five sixteen, which is confess your sins one to another so that you may be healed and the prayers of a righteous person availeth much and so that idea of you know speaking out what was you know what i what i chose to do that was wrong in the past and asking for someone that i trust yeah. to pray has huge benefits when it comes to recovery and healing yes. from a, uh, a sinful decision.
0: Yeah. You know, there's a lot of truth in that. I don't know if it's a cliche or what it is, that little maxim or that little saying that sunlight is the greatest disinfectant. And, you know, I would say to your audience today, if you are listening and you've either had an abortion or you have been responsible for one, um, certainly you need to confess that to god and accept that gift of grace that is yours and and not just the gift of grace in forgiveness but the grace that comes to you in in healing christ can't be our um healer until he is first our savior and when i say you can't i mean certainly christ can heal us at any stage but you know the order is that we confess it and acknowledge it as sin but then accept that healing that comes Philippians 1 tells us that he who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And so I think that's just beautiful. It's not just that God forgives us us of our sin. And again, we could be talking about any sin, lust, lying, gossip, slander, or in this case, abortion. But that he does more than that. He not only promises to forgive us when we we confess our sin, but he promises to put us back together emotionally and to restore us to kingdom usefulness. And that is such a great message. It's so sad and so tragic that so many churches have chosen silence over faithfulness. It's like, we've got the good news. You know, people can find real freedom and real forgiveness for their sins. And yeah, we should not be shy about that at all.
1: So so Mike, how would you encourage someone who is attending a church that is silent? What, what would you say to that person that, that may encourage them or help them um, communicate something that's needed to their to their leadership at their church?
0: Um, that's a really important question. And I, I, what I would encourage people to do is remember, if you want your pastor to speak out against abortion, you may have to speak to your pastor or your priest about abortion. And I know that's tough to do. Um, and, and having served in a pastoral role for different pastoral roles for 23 years, you know, I, I know how difficult that job can be to be a pastor. Um, and I, I know most people in our churches are respectful of the role and respectful, respectful of the, the person serving in that role. And they may be a little bit hesitant to go to him. But, you know, I would encourage you, if your shepherd is silent, to go prayerfully, um, not to hit him up Sunday morning, you know, five minutes after his sermon. Um, but to call him through the week and just say, you know, Father Joe, Pastor Bob, you know, is there a chance I could come in and chat with you this next week? And and tell Tell him what it is you want to talk to him about. Say, you know, I've got a burden for the unborn and their young moms, and I wonder if I could just come in and, and share that with you and see if there are ways that I can partner with you, that I could might be able to help you in, 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 in this respect. In other words, offer yourself to a pastor as one who wants to help him, not as one who wants to nail him. Um, at the same time, I think it's more than fair, and I think it's actually the right thing to do, is to go in and share your burden with him let him know why you care so deeply about this and ask him some pointed questions, but do it again, respectfully and humbly, but say, you know, pastor, can I ask, why don't we talk about this here? Why are you not talking about this here? Can I ask where you stand on this? Um, Do you think it's important to share this with the church? If not, why not? You know, I think again, not in an interrogating way, but in a respectful way, I think this can be done. And I think it should be done. I mean, frankly, a shepherd who's not doing this, um, Needs somebody in his flock. He needs a Nathan to come to him, and and to to challenge him. Um, you're doing your pastor, you're doing your priest a favor if you hold them accountable like this. Remember, they do this every Sunday with you. You know, they get up in the pulpit every Sunday and tell you how to raise your children, and how to manage your money, and how to behave sexually, and so on and so forth. Every once in a while, if they if they're dishing it out week after week, they should be able they should have broad enough shoulders to take it too. Again, I, I'm not encouraging anybody to go in with their guns blazing. But to go in prayerfully, respectfully, and humbly, but unapologetically, and holding his feet to the fire uh, is is the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. So, so people
1: t- tend to have a lot of strong opinions about abortion, um, and sometimes it's said that there's no no sense arguing about abortion that you know people don't change their minds, and it can be very right. frustrating. Like you know if if you have conflict and then there's no maybe positive outcome that seems to come from that. Um, what what are your sense on, you know, the right, the right posture towards trying to be um, helpful or persuasive and helping someone sort of, um, you know, to see, to see a more positive uh, Christ-like, um, you know, position on, on this, on this topic.
0: Yeah, well, I think you just answered it in a way with that phrase there, Christ-like. I think that's the key is we we need to be Christ-like. First of all, I would say this. It's just not true that people never change their their mind about abortion. I, I'm living proof of that. I changed my mind, and I could point you to many others, and I'm sure you could do the same, uh, Jacob, uh, many other national pro-life leaders who saw abortion or somebody presented a good argument argument to them, and, and they did change their mind. So I see it in my work. Um, I know others are seeing it in their work as well. People do change their minds. Ultimately, though, our role is to just be faithful, is to present a good case, is to make um, the argument for the unborn in a gracious and compelling manner. Of course, that depends on a lot of things. It depends on us having good arguments. We need to avail ourselves. There's great apologetic works out there today, all kinds of resources that, that are available to us. We need to avail ourselves of these so that we know what it is we're arguing. And First Peter 3.15 says, always be prepared to give an argument or an answer to everyone who asked you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And so we need to be prepared to give those arguments, to make those arguments, not in an argumentative manner, of course, but in the in the true sense of the word. The way a, an attorney would argue on behalf of a client in a court of law, he or she is presenting good reasons to believe that his or her client is innocent. So that's what we're doing. We're trying to present a good case here, appealing to the science of human embryology to make the, the case for the full biological humanity of the unborn child, and then appealing to moral reasoning to make the case for the full person into the unborn child, and then knowing how to handle tough objections. What about rape? What about life of the mother? These kinds of things. But the other thing that we need is we do need, as you said, a Christ-like manner. If Look, the, the thing that drives the, 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 the pro-life movement, this, this sanctity of human life ethic that we have, is the belief that not only are the unborn lovable, not only should they be loved and protected, but even the one who threatens the unborn should be loved. Um, They may not be acting very lovable, but we should be loving them anyway. And and so it's incumbent upon us as Christ's ambassadors, and I think that's key there is to remember who we're representing. We're representing Christ and his little ones. And so it's incumbent upon us to approach even our most hostile opponent, even our most vile opponent, in a way that is gracious and respectful and kind. We need to be good listeners. Uh, We don't want to misrepresent people's views, um, we 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 just need to be gracious, and we need to be people who have of prayer, people who are led by God's spirit. And frankly, when we're doing those things, then really keeping our cool with others isn't that difficult. And I'm a pretty passionate guy. Um, and I yes, yeah, so I I've, I've walked away from conversations before where I felt oh, I, I didn't do a very good job of listening, or I was too hard with that person, or whatever. I've blown it. I, I'm I'm certainly uh, not going to claim otherwise, but. The truth of the matter is, is the more we grow in this, the better we do this and, and the less mess ups we have in that. And people respond to authenticity. They respond to good, solid arguments. And not, not everybody does. But I think reasonably minded people um, are open to a good case. We need to make that case well.
1: So which passages in the Bible do you think really resonate on the church speaking up about abortion or resonate mm-hmm. in a Christian's uh, position, you know, helping us have like a foundation in biblical uh, texts on our position on abortion.
0: Well, I think Proverbs thirty-one eight couldn't be more clear. You know, speak up for those um, who have no voice for the rights of all who are destitute. It just doesn't become more clear than that. Uh, Proverbs twenty-four eleven says, "Rescue those being led away to death; hold back those staggering towards slaughter." It actually goes on to say in that in that passage. If if you claim, well, we didn't know anything about this, does not he who knows the heart perceive it? In other words, we are without excuse. Um, We've been clearly commanded to do this. So those would be just a couple of verses. Ephesians 5.11, which I referenced earlier, where Paul writes to the church and says, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. In other words, it's not just enough for Christians not to have an abortion, but then he goes on to say, but expose them, we're to expose this evil. So part of the job of the church is to expose this evil. And, uh, you know, there are other passages. I mean, we, the bottom line is, is, I mean, well, L- Luke chapter 10, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan. You know, the moral there is that we have a moral duty to our neighbor, whether that neighbor has been beaten and abandoned in a ditch or denied legal protection and abandoned in the womb. We have a moral duty to them. We are our brother's keeper. Right. So, I mean, we could there are so many other passages, of course, but that's just, you know, a few of them that I think are, are just crystal clear
1: so when it, when it comes to a, a church that wants to stay out of abortion because of because it's political yeah. because of how how political it is, what's your response yeah. to a a church leader that's trying to avoid you know you know tra- trying to essentially stay out of
0: politics? Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, I don't know what Bible they're reading. Um, I don't know where in the Bible it says stay out of politics. What I see in the Bible is become salt and light in every nook and cranny of society. So I don't, the, the whole premise there is just is just a faulty one. Um, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer didn't follow that advice. Uh, you know, um, Abraham Kuyper, the Dutch uh, theologian uh, philosopher, said this. He said, There's not one square inch of the entire domain of existence to which Christ doesn't point to it and say, That is mine. Christ is Lord of all. That means he's Lord of my parenting role. He's Lord of my role as a husband. He's Lord of my sexuality. He's the Lord of my money, and he's the Lord of my vote. So the rea- the reality is, is I think the church should be involved in politics. Now, that said, I don't think the church should become a political animal. I'm not suggesting anything like that, but we should be training people how to vote, how to use their influence as salt and light in society, and certain moral issues rise to the top when we go into the voting booth. When I go into the voting booth, Christ goes in there with me. He's the Lord of my vote. This is not an issue of partisanship. It's an issue of lordship. Now, that said, it is true, and I, I know some pro-lifers don't like this language, but I think we just need to be candid about this. It is true that abortion is a political issue. I mean, how can we deny it? Our nation is divided you know, uh, bitterly over the abortion issue, and, partic- and and we see that the political parties are diametrically opposed on this. So, the the, the you know the line is drawn politically but it is much more accurate though while i'm admitting that abortion is a political issue it's much much more accurate to describe it as a moral spiritual issue that has been politicized and when you think about it jacob every moral issue is eventually politicized i mean just a few years ago the redefining of marriage here in the united states was politicized that didn't render it off limits for the pulpit so just because um the dismembering, the decapitating, and the disemboweling of little boys and girls in the name of choice has been politicized, should not render it off limits for the pulpit. We don't lick our fingers as pastors and stick them into, into the wind to see which way the, fashion, the winds of fashion are blowing to decide what we're going to preach on. We are called to be a voice for the voiceless. And so that should trump everything in the pulpit, is what, what does God's word compel me to do here? So again, I, I would just keep going back to this. It's not an issue, ultimately, of partisanship. It is an issue of lordship. And lordship. Now, I would just add this, I, and, I, and I think shepherds should teach this, pastors and priests should be teaching this, that as Christians, we cannot name Christ Lord and then go into the voting booth and vote for a political party or a candidate who wants to strip an entire class of our citizenry their most fundamental right, the right to life. How can we do that in good conscience? We have a duty, and the duty is to protect the weakest among us and, and to cast our vote. Again, we're always voting for a lesser of two evils, admittedly, but we should be looking who's the best candidate here, who's the best party here that's going to protect um, innocent life. And that's the fundamental duty of government, of the state, is to protect the innocent from, uh, or I should say to protect, protect the weak from the strong. So... So, More could be said, but
1: sure, sure. But so with, with, uh, let's say 95% of pastors are, are male. Um, and you know, and it some people will say, you know, abortion is a woman's issue and how does, you know, no uterus, no opinion. What are your thoughts on a, a male pastor speaking, um, about abortion and, you know, how does that resonate, and how does that impact how that posture, you know, that posturing or the messaging might be.
0: Yeah, well, I think when pastors, uh, and again, most pastors are men, so a lot of pastors have self-censored on this point because they feel like, well, this has been packaged as a women's rights issue for decades, and you know, I'm not a woman, so I better keep my mouth quiet here, right? But the reality is, is that this is not a women's rights issue. And, and we, need to, we need to see it for what it is. It's a human rights issue. Or as I said earlier, it's a gospel. You're responding to abortion, that is, is a gospel issue. So um, it's interesting when, you know, I I don't hear this much anymore. And maybe it's because we don't even know what a woman is, you know, in our culture anymore. Maybe that's the reason. But the other side doesn't seem to be throwing this accusation or this. Uh, they don't seem to be silencing the church anymore. Well, let me restate that. We're not hearing as often this argument. Well, you're a man and you can't speak the issue. Because I think they're afraid to say that now because they don't want to be gendering us or whatever. But look, pro-life women give the same arguments against abortion as pro-life men. And so at the end of the day, even if you are a sexist and you don't like my uh, anatomy or my gender, you have to contend with my arguments. My arguments against abortion are either good arguments or they're bad arguments, but it has nothing to do uh, with my gender. It has nothing to do with my maleness. Furthermore, I would say this, not only do men um, have as much right um, to speak to the issue of abortion as any woman, I think they have a greater duty. And I know this will not sit well with uh, those that might be in your audience who are, are um, you know, have bought into feminism, but I'm convinced that God has called men to be the primary leaders of their homes, their communities, and their churches. And so this is a, just really a sexist argument. It's a foolish argument, and men should not be intimidated into silence by it. Hmm.
1: So what are your thoughts when someone says, like, you know, there's my church is divided? You know, maybe it's a 40-60 split, and not everyone is on the same page for abortion. And so bringing it up would, you know, out of fear of like a division or lots of conflict— you know the, the the pastor or leadership is silent. What would be your response to that that scenario?
0: Well, the first thing, if the church is, if 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 a given a particular local church is divided over the issue of abortion, the question that shepherd ought to be asking himself is, why is my church divided over such a fundamental moral issue? That that's the first thing. Now, maybe it's not his fault. Maybe he inherited that—that that, you know. Maybe he's new to that church. He's new on staff, and that's what he has inherited. But regardless, remaining silent um, over the subject of abortion because you think your because your church is divided over it is not protecting unity. It's actually protecting division. What you're actually saying is, "My church is divided. I'm going to remain silent so that it will remain divided." So you're not protecting unity at that point. You're protecting division. Instead. the division over abortion should become the marching orders. That should be the thing that says, okay, I have a duty now before God and before this flock, and that is to preach with all the fire of a reformer until I drive every little vestige of division over this basic moral issue from the hearts and the minds of my people. That's what that shepherd should be doing. So rather than looking at church division over abortion saying, well, that's my reason to remain silent, that's the reason he should be speaking up boldly and he should do it until they can as one voice, like the Apostle Paul, say, from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in that way. That's 2 Corinthians 5, I believe it is. So um, no church should be... I mean, imagine if we were talking about not the killing of unborn babies, Jacob, but imagine if we were talking about the legalized killing of toddlers. Let's say that that was what we were all divided about as a nation, right? And you had pro-toddler killing people and anti-toddler killing people and so forth. And the church was divided, like you said, 60-40 or whatever the split was. Imagine saying, well, my church is divided over whether or not it's okay to kill toddlers, so I'm going to just be quiet about this. <laughs> it's just a ridiculous. It's an incredible way of thinking, really. It's just an absurd and obscene way of thinking, I should say.
1: And really, the killing of toddlers is not that extreme. I mean, it is extreme. But, and and that's what, you know, that's how, you know, Jesus was threatened as a toddler to be wiped out as someone under two years old. And so, you know, the, uh, you know, government action uh, to, you know, to try and wipe out a competing king was, that's what happened there. Um, So let's go to a, a hard case scenario and see how you, you know, you would respond. So what happens when a young woman is woman is raped and she becomes pregnant? What are your, what are your thoughts Mm. on abortion and
0: life in that scenario? Yeah. Um, So, you know, that's, that is, I I think that's probably the most difficult challenge that we face as pro lifers is the rape challenge. Um, Now, I don't think it's difficult morally, and I'll explain that in a minute, but it's very difficult emotionally. And the reason is, is because tragically in our culture and in every culture, some women do get raped, some young girls do get raped, and some of them do become pregnant. And, and so this is a very difficult um, uh, challenge that we face. And one thing I would just warn your, your listeners against is doing what a lot of pro-lifers will do. And I'll admit, I used to do this 15, 20 years ago when when I just didn't—I hadn't been taught Christian apologetics or pro-life apologetics. I really didn't know any better. But a lot of times, you'll hear pro-lifers say, "Well, that's less than 1% of all abortions," which may be true, but it's not helpful. If you're the 24-year-old woman or the 14-year-old girl who's been raped and now you—only weeks later—you discover that now you're—you're pregnant against your will. You didn't choose this, right? Telling that woman or that younger, oh well, don't worry, it's less than one percent. is not a helpful is not a helpful um, response. So I would recommend a two part response to this challenge. The first thing I would encourage your listeners to do is to show real empathy. Uh, you, you, the woman that's asking the question, or the man, or the young person that's asking the question, may have either been raped or may have a loved one who's been raped. And, and sometimes we don't know who that audience, you know, who our audience is. So we should not. Uh, we we should be careful. To answer not just the question that's being asked, but the person who's asking it. So, in other words, I want to be sensitive to that person. So I think so i will tell you how I do this. Now, again, you, your audience is going to do this differently because their story is different. But I, I will usually say something like this: "Well, listen, you know, uh, uh, you know, thank you for the question. Thanks for the challenge. I appreciate it. I am married to a woman. I have four daughters, and I have four granddaughters, and I cannot imagine one of my loved ones being raped." And then only to find out weeks later that she's now pregnant. Um, this would be a horrific um, situation. And uh, I'm very sympathetic to that. So that's the first thing we need to do. And by the way, showing sympathy is not a checkbox. I mean, I know you know that, Jacob, but it's not a checkbox. We have to take the time and, and really show ourselves to be genuinely compassionate. I, I mean, I can't imagine being a woman or a young girl who's been raped and now has a baby. Um, I, this would be horrible. But the second thing that we do, the second part of this response, is to ask the person who's bringing the challenge to you, you know, hey, Diane or hey, Joe, but isn't the real question, how should a civilized society treat innocent members of society who remind us of a painful event? Should we kill them? Now, that's the moral focus question there. How should a civilized society treat innocent members of society who remind us of a painful event? In the case of rape, where a child has been conceived, you have two victims. You have the mother and you have that little one who didn't choose to be brought into the world through those circumstances. But the fact of the matter is, is you have two lives there, two human beings. And it's ironic that those on the other side of this issue will argue that we should give the death penalty to the innocent child for the crimes of the guilty father, the rapist. That's barbaric. I say we love them both, love both the mother and the baby. We can do that, and that is what nearly 3,000 pregnancy care centers throughout the United States and many churches are doing exactly exactly that. Um, the, in the case of rape, where a child has been conceived, the question is not how was one conceived, but rather was one conceived. That's the real question here. And um, we need to stay focused on that question, what is the preborn in our dialogue with people about this, about this issue? What we're doing in the in where you know Roe v. Wade, which I know has fallen now, but we still have abortion legal in most states. Um, what we're doing is we're saying to the the woman who was raped or the young girl who was raped, because somebody has treated you horribly, because somebody has assaulted you and violated you horribly, we are now going to let you legally assault another human being to death. That's really what we're doing. How is that helpful? to the young woman or the young girl who's been raped. I like what Lila Rose of Live Action says. She says that abortion does not unrape a woman. It is true that a woman who or young girl who has conceived a child through rape it's true that that baby if she chooses to parent the baby or even if not that that baby will re- be a reminder to her the rest of the rest of her life of having been raped. But killing that child is not going to make that memory go away. And so I think we need to love both the mother and the baby in this case, and I think we can do that.
1: Hmm. Well, so the next question I've got is, you know, or the you know one of the uh, reasons that some people will ag- advocate for abortion is based on the life of the mother. So um, I was recently, well, talking to someone who was Muslim and talking to them about their pro-life stance, and I learned that the Muslim faith is against abortion, except in the case where the life of the mother is in danger. And, and my understanding with modern science, it's primarily based off of whether you have a pro-life doctor or a pro-abortion doctor. Uh, you know, For example, if someone has cancer and they need to have chemo treatments, you know, a pro-life doctor might say, wait until the baby is two weeks older and then proceed with chemo. While a pro-abortion doctor might say, let's have an abortion so you have one less thing to take care of. Mm-hmm. And, and so really, I think with modern science, there really isn't a reason for the life of the mother to have an abortion. Um, you know, if, if the baby's life is viable, like, you know, in the case of, a, of a, a ectopic, the baby is not going to survive. And if the baby is not removed from the fallopian tube, then it will kill the mother um, and so, but when it comes to a viable pregnancy, um, modern science, essentially or modern medicine allows for, yeah, allows for treatments while, while pregnant. What are your thoughts of like, you know, this, but the, the, of this argument of the life of the mother is a reason to have the abortion what are your thoughts on that, right. that dialogue and, t- and, the, and the, yeah, points.
0: Yeah, well, I think the the rape challenge and then this one, the life of the mother challenge, or the health, life and health of the mother challenge, are really the two biggest ones that we face. And again, for the same reason, because they're they're emotional and and understandably so, because women's lives. In this case, we're talking about uh, you know an ectopic pregnancy, let's say, or you know or a chorioamnionitis or severe placental abruption, whatever. These are life-threatening, health, uh, certainly uh, health-threatening, and light and even life-threatening pregnancy-related conditions. And I think the question then becomes, the moral question becomes. Well, what can we do? What what moral good thing can we do? Well, in the case of let's say an ectopic pregnancy, where where the baby is the baby's going to grow, ninety five percent of ectopic pregnancies result in the baby lodging in one of the fallopian tubes, right? And that um, as that baby grows, the fallopian tube is going to rupture eventually, and uh, assuming that there's not a, 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 some kind of emergency medical treatment taken before that, and and that mother will, as you said. Uh, if she doesn't get immediate emergency medical treatment, she's going to hemorrhage to death. And about 45 to 60 women die in the uh, United States every year from an ectopic pregnancy, from a a tubal pregnancy rupturing. So it is a very serious situation. But the fact of the matter is, is that we never need, doctors never need to intentionally abort or kill a baby to save a mother's life at any stage in pregnancy. They may have to induce labor or perform a C-section, take that baby so early that the baby could not possibly survive, but that's not an abortion because abortion is the intentional killing of the unborn baby. In this case, the intention is to save the mother's life with the foreseen but unintended consequence of the baby dying. Now, some in your audience might say, well, you're splitting hairs. What's the difference? Well, there's a big difference because when we judge or assess the, um, uh, uh, moral decisions, we don't just um, uh, judge the act, but we judge the motive behind the act. And I'm not suggesting that the motive is good, that the action is always good, but I am saying we take both of those things into consideration. So, in the case of an ectopic pregnancy where the doctors would perform either a self-injectomy or a self one goes in and removes the baby and the fallopian tube. The other one goes and removes the baby from the fallopian tube, but in both cases, the baby's going to die, right? But that's not an abortion, and uh, by the way, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a medical expert. I'm not pretending to be that. But there are plenty of experts out there. Um, Dr. Christina Francis from uh, APLUG. She's the CEO of the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists, as well as Dr. Anthony Levitino, one of the nation's uh, most respected high-risk pregnancy doctors. Uh, the Dublin Declaration of Healthcare, uh, the Dublin Declaration on Maternal Health. Um, of 2012, signed by over a thousand uh, medical experts, doctors and medical experts, all say that you never need to intentionally kill a baby to save a mother's life. Now, again, just to be clear, doctors may have to perform um, a surgery, or maybe they have to induce labor, or perform C sections so early in that pregnancy that the baby couldn't survive. But that is not the intentional killing of the baby. In that case, they're doing that because they can't save the baby. The baby's going to die anyway what they're doing is trying to do the good that they can do, and the good that they can do is to save the mother. So uh, this is um, not commonly known, even within the body of Christ, and maybe even within the, the more narrow pro-life community. Many pro-lifers or people who would claim to be pro-life and, and are would be confused about this issue because there's been so much misinformation about it. But the fact of the matter is, is um, you never need to intentionally kill an unborn baby to save the mother's life.
1: Awesome. Yeah, very well said. Um, I I would so the next you know attack that we often feel in the pro life world or you know pregnancy clinic world is that we don't care about the the moms and the babies after, you know after the baby's been born. What what are your thoughts on on that um, on that attack? Yep. Yeah.
0: Well, you know some accusations are so ridiculous that they they barely um uh require a response, but I'm, I'm going to give one to that because I know that that is, again, that's one of these accusations that's made routinely about, about the pro-life community. And there's just not an ounce of truth in it. Let's just do a little bit of math. Let's follow the money here. Right now in the United States, there are, are not quite 700 abortion clinics. About 350 of those are surgical abortion clinics. About 250 of those are pill clinics or chemical clinics. Um, Many of those are owned and operated by men for financial profit off of women, young women, who are in a crisis and off the blood of their children. And these guys are driving Lamborghinis and they're living in gated communities because abortion is big money, right? Now, follow the money. So we've got 700 abortion clinics approximately, many of those run by men for financial profit off of women. And right now in the United States, we have a growing number of pregnancy care centers, and that number is up to almost 3,000 if you google it it's like 21 to 2200 i think is the number you you, you know, that you will find but that's a little bit misleading because many of those centers have two three four and five locations so that brings the actual number up to nearly 3000 these centers are predominantly not exclusively but predominantly led by men uh, i'm sorry i'm sorry uh, by by women for women, at no cost to women, and these ladies are not driving Lamborghinis and living in gated communities because most of them are are getting very modest salaries, or in many cases are are working in volunteer capacities. And many of their staff members are as well. Um, it doesn't take long to find out who the real friend of women and children, both born and unborn, really is. It is the pro life movement. And um, I mean, you just look at the look at Planned Parenthood. You you want an ultrasound at Planned Parenthood? It's 150 bucks to start. You want an ultrasound at any pregnancy care center that has an ultrasound machine and it's free. I mean, you know, it's, it's just, again, it's one of those accusations that, that sounds really good, plays really good in the media. The media loves that kind of an accusation that we are, you know, the argument is that we have a fetus fetish, that we're obsessed with saving the fetus. But once the baby comes, once the fetus comes out of the mother, uh, then we want to disappear. You know, we disappear. We want to take all welfare programs away. None of that None of that is true. And the other side, I think if they were honest with themselves, know that that's not true. Now, what we do need is we need the body of Christ. We need shepherds to be heralding this, to be championing uh, this fact from their pulpits because many of our own people don't know this. I, you know, I speak all over and I ask audiences frequently, how many pregnancy care centers? You know? I'll tell them there's 700 abortion clinics. How many pregnancy care centers do you think there are? Well, 60, 100, 200. I get that number all the time. Most people are shocked when I tell them that it's nearly 3,000 because nobody's telling that story. And if we don't tell it, it's not going to get told. But the reality is is no one loves moms and babies, both born and unborn, like the body of Christ and like the pro-life movement
1: yeah. and and sometimes it's a matter of, you know, there's there's a lot of focus that's that's spent on the the fire in the living room, and the fire in the backyard gets delayed because we're trying to take we're trying to put the fire out that's in the middle of the house. And you know there's there, it's a matter of priori- priorities and but also, it's a matter of fi- finding balance. Once we, once we, um, you know, have some programs in place and for the the major issues, it provides a little bit of bandwidth for providing support for all issues. But you know, um, people don't complain to the, uh, you know, the anti-smoking group, you know, that you're not doing enough to feed, you know, to feed people that are starving yeah. in Africa. Yeah, but yet, but for some reason, pricey clinics are responsible for everything. And it feels more like an attack more so than a uh, a helpful um well, rebuke
0: <laughs> you're right. that, that is what it is when, yeah. look when pro-choice people tell us you know we're we're only pro-life or we're not really pro-life, we're only pro-birth. when they say that they're not trying to help us out to be more consistent. what they're really trying to do is is make us look bad. Um, but the fact of the matter is is, uh, you know I, well, I like how um uh, Fred, uh, Frederick the Great is credited with having said, he who fights everywhere fights nowhere. We have limited resources, and I think our enemies, our opponents would love us to spread our resources so so thin as to be completely ineffective in everything that we do. We stay focused narrowly on saving the unborn because the other side is focused narrowly on killing them. Um, and so we don't need to apologize for the fact that, that you know, um, that we are focused in a very narrow way. We can't do everything. And, and you're, you make a great point. You know, nobody says to the American Cancer Society, you know, if you're really against cancer, you'd also be against abortion. No, it, they only do, that only flows in one direction. It's only us that they, you know, if you're really pro-life, then you're going to be against war and you're going to be for gun control and you're going to be for open borders and you're going to be feeding the poor and clothing the naked and doing all of these other things. They want to broaden it so, so widely uh, that, that we are ineffective at everything. They're not. These are not our friends. These are people that are, are really just trying to um, to silence us. Really,
1: yeah. There's a lot of um, power when it comes to focus, and and even in the pro life world, there are people that focus in certain portions of it, and that's much more fruitful than someone trying to take on all the different hats within the pro life sphere. And so, it's focus has a tremendous power when it comes to effectiveness and right. results. Um, and that's why yeah, you know, know we're, we're part of the body of Christ. I mean we're you know, we, you know, the, yeah we you know we ask yeah. the, the ear to hear and the eye to see and we don't ask the reverse.
0: <laughs> well you know, just look at you and I, we're doing very different work. And, and you know it's the beauty of the body of Christ as you're saying it's the beauty in the pro-life movement that you see different people with different giftings. you know, I'm doing one thing, somebody else is doing another thing, but we are together, we are an army of gentle warriors who are, are, are really making a difference. And I I thank God for that.
1: Yeah. So, so tell us about, um, so you're in Ohio and there's been some political things going on in the pro life sphere or the, yeah. And the right, the life sphere there, tell us about what's going on and yeah, what your thoughts are. Yeah,
0: no, I'm glad to answer that. There is right now here in our state, the state of Ohio, a, um, a ballot initiative, um, that has been, pr- b- been pr- excuse me, proposed or put forth by um, a couple of pro-abortion organizations, and um, they are putting 70 million dollars into this campaign um, to codify abortion into law, uh, to um, codify this into our state constitution. What it will do, in essence, uh, Jacob, is it will strip the unborn of all protective rights and all laws that that are in place currently in Ohio to protect them. It will will do away with all of those. It will also do away with parental consent laws so that parents will no longer, if this passes in November, um, right now where it stands is that uh, the other side has to garner, I think it's 413,000 votes um, by July 5th, which I'm sure they will have no trouble doing. Um, And if they do that, then this will go on the ballot in November. Now it all gets a little bit... um, Right now, we have a, in Ohio we have a fifty percent plus one um, rule. So, uh, for this to pass, we only need fifty percent of the uh, voter block plus one to make that wow. pass, which is a low threshold for any kind of a change. It's ridiculous, no, that, you know, that we have that low of a standard for for our that our constitution frankly isn't protected better than that. Um, but it did just pass in our house. That uh, this is now going to go to a vote, a special election in August. I think it's August eighth. Uh, I believe is the date where we will actually be voting to raise that threshold to 60%, which would be great. But regardless, it looks like this will go to the ballot in November, um, and Ohioans uh, and Christians are going to vote on whether or not they think the unborn are disposable. But it's going, to, it's going to strip the unborn of all rights. It's going to strip parental rights away from parents. It's also going to take safety and health um, uh, standards away from mothers or from moms and from women. Uh, right now, um abortion clinics in, in the state of Ohio are considered ambulatory surgical facilities, and so they have to have um, the abortionist has to have uh, hospital privileges with uh, within thirty miles of his abortion clinic uh, in order to um, uh, perform abortions. Um it'll strip that. so that'll take these safety and health um, regulations away, um, putting women's lives at even greater risk. Um, and it will also impact, because of the way the, 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 the wording in Ohio's ballot initiative is almost identical to the wording in Michigan. What it's going to do if it passes here is it's not only going to strip parents, uh, well, it's not only going to strip the unborn of their rights, but it's also going to and, and take parental rights away from parents with respect to abortion. But it's also going to take the right away from parents to have a say in whether or not their son or daughter gets um, uh, uh Uh, surgeries for, um, you know, if they're, uh, uh, um, you know, for transgendering surgeries, I'm throwing a blank here on the words. Um, And so it's it's just, it's really a hideous thing that they are proposing and a a very, a very terrible thing for children, both born and unborn. And so, yes, I'm very involved in that effort right now with a group, um, well, with another uh, woman here in the state of Ohio. Um, Her name is Laura. Kern, Laura, and I are working on an organization. Uh, we've put together a small organization called Together for Life Ohio, where we are going throughout the state at our, at our own expense um, to speak at pastor's luncheons, pastor's breakfasts. We've already done, I think, seven or eight of these. We've got another one coming up here in a couple of days. We've got several of them on the calendar. So we are going throughout the state of Ohio, equipping pastors to know how to respond to this in their pulpits, how to equip their, their, um, their churches uh, to stand against this evil. This, this evil. So that's what's happening here. And it's and all eyes are on Ohio because really, um, as Ohio goes, oftentimes the country goes that way as well. So, um, yeah, it's a very important battle. We we have to win this. We need shepherds, pastors, and priests to speak out, to speak out boldly, to equip their congregations to stand against this. And they can, if they're interested to find out more, to bring us in, they can go to our, our website, togetherforlifeohio.org, and they can contact us through that.
1: Wow. Well Mike I've really enjoyed yeah hearing all the you know your your wisdom and intellect on these topics would you would you uh wrap up our podcast with a prayer uh, with those who are listening they can join as they're you know driving on their daily commute they can uh yeah pray along with you know this passionate direction for for saving lives and also praying for yeah for um for safety for the children in Ohio um through the lawmaker uh yeah these lawmaking yeah. um things that are going on.
0: Well, I'd be glad to do that, Jacob. Let's do that. Let's pray. Father, it is a great blessing for us to be a voice to the voiceless, that you would um, raise us up as individuals in our um, respective circles of influence to speak up for those who have no voice, to rescue those who are being led away to death, And God, I do pray that as our nation continues, as the pro-life community in our nation continues to press on, that you will bring victory to us, Um, that we will have an undying resolve to give voice to the voiceless. And we do pray specifically about this battle in Ohio, Lord, that you would raise up shepherds, pastors, and priests who would be unashamed of the unborn, who would be bold um, voices for the voiceless, that you would uh, put it in the hearts of every professing Christian, to stand against this evil when they vote in November. Lord, we want you to be glorified and we want to see our nation um, safe for children and safe for young moms. And I pray that you would embolden the church and strengthen us to do just those things. And we ask it in the name of Christ today, amen. Our sponsors include Heritage House, Patriot Insurance, and irapture.com.
1: The Pro-Life Team Podcast is a ministry of irapture.com.
2: If you would like to explore making a donation or becoming a sponsor or have a recommendation for who would be a good guest on the podcast, please contact us at hello at pro shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green. He leaves me by quiet. Blue. Yeah, the walk through darkness, Dallas, you are me, I me. your protection and guidance are comforting me everywhere.